If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Will you pray with me? The current debate, Holy One, is whether or not the Border Patrol agents on horseback were wielding whips or split reins as if the actual problem isn't that we are herding human beings like cattle. White Americans need to stop waving the Bible over their heads and start reading it. We are quite convinced that Jesus loves us, so maybe, maybe we need to review the parts about your wrath towards the unrighteous. That might be what it takes to humble us into humanity. Leave our hearts in shattered pieces until we make this right, Holy One. We pray in the name of Jesus, who came to set the captives free. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm." Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly, as I must speak. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Last week, I went with my husband, Colin, to Washington, D.C. for 48 hours. 
We arrived on Wednesday at 1 o'clock, and we were back home on Friday by 1 o'clock. He had a data privacy conference for state legislators, which meant that I had the chance to finish my sermon in the shadow of our national monuments and memorials. Thursdays are always reserved for Sunday's sermon, no matter where I am. In the preaching profession, we say, the sermon is finished. I just have to write it. (laughs) Which means that by Thursday, the preparation has been done. The reading, the research, the thread pulling, all this has been done ahead of time so that on Thursday, the preacher sits down and trusts, to paraphrase preacher Fred Craddock, that the spirit will move when the laptop opens. So on Thursday, I sat on the pink Tennessee marble floor of the Lincoln Memorial, leaned against the Indiana limestone columns with the words of the Gettysburg Address above me on one side and the second inaugural address on the other, and I wrote. Looking out towards the reflecting pool, the somber black walls of the Vietnam Memorial peak just into view on the left. And way down on the other end of the reflecting pool sits the World War II memorial. Sacrifice, patriotism, duty. And on the screen in front of me, the words of Paul, the scripture lesson for today, with its battle metaphors and talk of swords and shields. As a kid raised in the Southern Baptist Convention, the soundtrack to this scene played in my head almost instantly, given the surroundings. Perhaps it did for some of you, too, just hearing the scripture. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus, going on before. Or or perhaps the Vacation Bible School version is more familiar to you. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom o'er the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. You nailed it. I want you to hang on to that energy. Hang on to it. We're going to need that in a little bit. I've considered starting a support group for those of us who have whole percentage parts of our brain dedicated to church camp songs, because those lyrics will stay with us long after we lose our fine motor skills. (laughs) For those of you who weren't raised on those songs, the lyrics might come across as aggressive, inappropriate even. For those of you who were raised on those songs, you might feel some discomfort singing them now. This is likely because you have been alive during the last 50 years, as conservative evangelical Christianity has become increasingly militaristic, a position fully explored and embraced by Jerry Falwell and friends in the 1980s. It has become the hallmark of the religious right. In 1981, writes Kristen Coez Dumez in her book, Jesus and John Wayne, journalist Francis Fitzgerald introduced Falwell to the American public in a lengthy New Yorker profile, 
Falwell was fighting a holy war. According to Falwell, this war was between those who loved Jesus and those who hated him. Military metaphors structured Falwell's understanding of Christianity. The church was an army equipped for battle, Sunday school, an attacking squad, Christian radio, the artillery. Christians, like slaves and soldiers, asked no questions. As an occupation force, they needed to advance with bayonet in hand to bring the enemy under submission to the gospel of Christ. The enemy here was a human one, according to Fitzgerald, anyone who didn't subscribe to Falwell's brand of fundamentalism. Falwell's militarism gave shape to the gospel he preached and to the Savior at the heart of that gospel. Falwell couldn't stomach effeminate descriptions of Christ as a delicate man with long hair and flowing robes. Jesus was a man with muscles. Christ was a he-man. Falwell's rhetoric, she continues, was reminiscent of earlier fundamentalist militancy, but he combined it with the Cold War militarism and a rigid reassertion of patriarchal gender roles. For Falwell, each would define and reinforce the other. Falwell's militancy promised protection from enemies within and without. In this way, Falwell's authority depended on maintaining a sense of vulnerability among his followers. This was achieved through this continual fabrication of new enemies. Danger, discrimination, and disparagement lurked around every corner. Malevolent forces aligned against true believers. Outsiders were likely to be enemies. Threats of spiritual and cultural nature required a militant Christianity. Threats to the nation required unrestrained militarism. And these verses, these verses from Ephesians were and still are used to build the image of a Christian soldier and support Christian nationalism as if Christianity in America is under attack. I need not spend much time going into detail about how white Christian America is not the minority or under assault, much less under pressure in this current age, you live here. You are aware that they are literally making up problems like the war on Christmas. Furthermore, these verses have been used to support the idea of manifest destiny and God-ordained violence, and the result has been devastating to the nation, to the world, to the church universal. At the very least, it's enough for many Christians, particularly progressive ones, to avoid or ignore scriptures like these and abandon hymns that echo that language. I think this is a tragedy for both the hymns and the scripture, and for several reasons. First, it's lazy. The progressive church cannot just shrug its shoulders when absolutes are made on scripture and tradition by those who seek to use them for power, control, and domination. I do not want to explain to Jesus that, yeah, you did some really good work while you're here, but it was just really too tough to keep it up. Second, it's lazy. 
It's an admission that we don't actually read or study the Word when one takes the text seriously enough to read it and study it we do not find a battle cry in which the church militant will usher in God's kingdom by attacking others. But instead, we find a call for the saints to stand firm and the needed resources of resistance given to the community through prayer and by the Spirit. We know that Paul was writing from prison writing while in chains, not while sitting in the 700 Club studio. This is a message for a community in the minority. As Minister Candace Simpson explains, Paul was quite often in bodily danger and found himself imprisoned more than once for the cause of Christ. His circumstances shaped his language, and his language could only attempt to make sense of his circumstances. This passage is not written from the comfort of a writer's retreat tucked away in the mountains and sponsored by a major epistle publisher. Paul is likely stressed, exhausted, and experiencing great mental distress. He writes with urgency and with the language of war because he is quite actively engaged in a battle. We also know that flesh and blood opponents are not those against whom one contends in this text. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whether one regards evil as a malevolent cosmic force or systemic powers of racism, nationalism, and classism, the fight is against anything that is not just and loving. Paul knew the challenges we meet in following Jesus. For him, it was impossible to feed people when the empire controlled food supplies. For us, it's impossible to house people when it is more financially profitable to keep luxury apartments empty. So before we declare this passage the property of Christian fundamentalists, let us first do our work. Paul thought and wrote and lived for his time. We think and write and live for ours. Using Paul's writing as inspiration, it is time for our language, our metaphors, our imagery to reflect the anti-war and anti-imperialist theology of Jesus. We do this as part of our responsibility as our siblings keeper to pull our conservative evangelical siblings away from the false teaching of Christian nationalism. To be sure, white Christian America is not under attack, but the way of Jesus sure seems to be. The way of forgiveness of nonviolent resistance, the way of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, of caring for the sick and the imprisoned. It seems we now have to calculate how much money diversion programs and drug courts will save the state before we invest. It isn't enough that they have been proven to be the best route to ending cycles of poverty and incarceration and reuniting families. We also do this work 
because of our responsibility as disciples to embody the kingdom of heaven on earth. And we recognize the items Paul lists not as weapons, but as tools. We can, of course, find non-carceral, non-militaristic language for the things we need to meet the challenges of our time. In any field, we have various tools and strategies to support the work of justice. And this is vital. For as ethicist Reverend Dr. Emily Towns, Dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School says, it's what we do every day that shapes us and says more about us than those grand moments of righteous indignation and action. So we might ask ourselves, how would a line cook rewrite this passage? What about a, a dancer or a teacher, a primary caregiver, a social worker, a librarian? What does the faithful professor police officer, mail carrier, banker, and grandparent clothe themselves with in order to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly every day. If we are supposed to put on the whole armor of God, Paul's list just isn't complete. So perhaps we might put on the point shoes of peace, or tie on the apron of righteousness, or fasten the belt of the vaccine around our waist and put on the mask of compassion. We can develop lesson plans of the Spirit. We might send our children off to school carrying the lunchbox of unconditional love, grasping pencils of encouragement in their little hands. And all the while, we will, as Paul encouraged us, to pray in the Spirit at all times. So I started tinkering with the words of our favorite Vacation Bible School song. To be sure, the original words aren't that bad if you really read them, but they aren't particularly instructive. You know, like there's nothing in there about what exactly it means to be in the Lord's army. So let's see where this gets us. I will always march in the pride parade, tear down the border wall, answer the justice call. I will always help others when they fall, for I'm in the Lord's army. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.